Good morning. Uh, as I introduced myself earlier, my name is David. Um, I am the Creative Arts Director here at Grace. And so this morning I'm filling in uh, because uh, Pastor Brad's son, Michael, is being ordained to the gospel ministry. And so Brad is celebrating that with Michael uh, in Boone. And so getting back and forth to Boone is not particularly easy on a Sunday morning. And so he's going went ahead and is there with them. And then uh, 12 families from our church are participating in a couple's retreat just outside of Boone at TVR Christian Camp. And so we are certainly missing them this morning uh, as well, but excited in what God is doing in that couple's retreat. Um, you'll hear a lot more about TVR Christian Camp through the course of a year, all the opportunities that there are to be ministered to by them and then to go and minister there as well. So uh, if you've not heard of that camp before, you will hear more. Um, I had the privilege of preaching for a Deep Impact Missions Camp this year, and I've actually done that for the last three years. So this morning, I'm going to repackage some of what I shared during camp this summer. Um, and so I apologize to my friend Eric, who has already heard pretty much all of this. Uh, but um, what I'm going to do instead of uh, at camp, it's usually a theme-based idea is what you're communicating. But I'm going to preach it as an expository sermon. So one of the distinctives of Grace Community Church is that uh, Pastor Brad and our, our elders, they practice and promote expository preaching rather than topical preaching. We strive to let the scriptures drive us to the pulpit rather than letting a sermon topic drive us to the scripture. And so expository preaching means having a text from scripture, then letting that text lead us to application to our lives. So the expositor basically uh, helps God's word for you cross the bridge from page to your life. Uh, an expository sermon observes the text, uh, noting what is there, then interprets the text based on its context and what the author of Scripture meant. And in this morning's case, uh, it's the psalmist and God. And then, and then we explore how this should shape us, how it applies. So if, if that sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> you're not wrong. Um, but we're not the only ones working up here as we preach. You can actually practice expository listening while Brad or I are preaching. So consistently ask yourself, what is he talking about? Like seriously, you should be asking yourself this. If you're sitting here for 45 minutes while someone is talking to you, what are they talking about? You need to ask yourself that. Uh, but also ask, what difference does it make? Or so what? One of my professors in Divinity School made that question at the end of every lecture. All right, I just talked to you for an hour. So what? What difference does this make? What am I saying about the thing that I'm talking about? And then now what? Now what do I do with God's claims in this sermon? And now what happens in response? So ask yourself these questions through the course of any sermon that you're hearing, whether it's uh, Brad or me or, or anybody else. Uh, so you can practice expository listening. With all that in mind, uh, we're going to read Psalm 97 together, and our custom is to stand as the word is read. So if you would stand with me as we read from Psalm 97. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. 
His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the peoples see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Rejoice, proclaim, be glad. Uh, these were the, the words that were the theme for our camp this summer. Uh, and this was the theme psalm, if you will, of camp. So actually, a lot of us can associate certain songs with summertime, right? Uh, we hear a song on Mix 101.5 or on Pandora, and we're immediately taken back to some memory in the summer, right? Well, camp themes kind of force the issue. They, they want you to have this thing, so that whenever you hear it, you remember whatever was talked about. So this summer, we had a theme psalm in addition to a theme song. But I got to spend a whole lot of time in this psalm, so it's going to be like that for me. Anytime someone starts humming this one, I'll think about the theme. There actually are tunes to these psalms. We just don't know most of them anymore. Uh, the theme was rejoice, be glad, proclaim. So we're going to walk through the psalm first, starting in verse 1. The Lord reigns. This is a powerful, powerful proclamation. This is worth a whole sermon by itself. The Lord reigns. The enemy does not reign. Famine does not reign. Power does not reign. Death does not reign. Money does not reign. The Creator, the Lord, reigns. And this statement is the context for the whole psalm. So we need to know what this means if we're going to understand everything else. So simply, uh, one of the things that we might gloss over, the fact that the Lord, in all caps, that means Yahweh. Uh, God's personal covenant name shared with his people. So don't forget this as you're reading through uh, the Bible and you can see this in English. Because the people of God, uh, of Israel, when they, they considered God's name so holy that they would not even speak it like when they were reading the scriptures out loud. So they would substitute uh, Lord uh, because they didn't want to take his name in vain, even by accident. Some of us need to practice that kind of holiness for the Lord's name. But when you combine Lord and Yahweh uh, in the scripture, you actually, when you put those words together, you get something that looks like Jehovah. And that's where that transliteration comes from, is Yahweh with the vowels of Lord. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and substitute here for the rest of our time in this psalm. Uh, when we see the Lord in all caps, I'm going to say Yahweh, because this is personal. 
This is relational. This is specific. There's so much more than simply the Lord, and yet many of us read right past this when we're reading the scriptures. So for the rest of the time, I'm going to say Yahweh instead of Lord, which might be a little unusual for some of us. But Yahweh reigns is a very specific statement. It's up front, right at the beginning of the psalm, right off the top. And so it gives us a framework for interpreting the rest of the psalm. Because without it, without this, like there's a part of this psalm that could be completely frightening. But because it is our covenant God, Yahweh, who is personal with us, who reigns, it'll make more sense. So immediately after we have this statement that the Lord reigns, that Yahweh reigns, we're told to rejoice Uh, to respond to this proclamation in verses 1 and 2. Yahweh reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the coastlands be glad. And then through verse 7, as you look, we get this beautifully poetic description of the power of God, where all of creation basically is affected by his presence when he moves in power. So as I mentioned, like imagine this description. Imagine this God, maybe he hasn't revealed anything about himself to us. He's just one of many gods, and you all of a sudden hear this God moving towards you. And yet, remember the proclamation from the beginning. Remembering that this is the God who has shared his personal name with you. He's made a covenant with you. When you read this description, how does it make you feel that this God loves you? He's on your side. He will protect you and provide for you. As we continue to walk through the text, uh, let's look at verses uh, 7 through 9. We see some words in here that probably need to be clarified again as we read through Scripture. There's a tendency that we might have, particularly when we're reading the Old Testament, where we might move past a word that we don't recognize or can't pronounce or have no category for. Uh, maybe it's some funky name, and, or it's a word that you may have heard in Sunday school, but you can't really place it now, or you just really have no idea what you just read. And come on, be honest. Like, all of us have had one of those moments as we read the Scripture. But if you've encountered it once, maybe you should resolve to go ahead and decide what it is that time you encounter it. So every other time, you'll know when you encounter those strange words again. And you'll be able to tell somebody else how to then read the scriptures better. So this morning, I've reminded you about, about LORD in all caps. But let's talk about Zion for a moment. Zion refers to the mountain where Jerusalem is, where the temple was. But it's also a reference to so much more than that. It's a poetic and prophetic way to talk about where God dwells. So in this context here in this psalm, It means both. Uh, This psalm was sung when a new king was being crowned. That was the context for this song. This morning we sung songs that were all rooted in the Psalter, in the Psalms. And so those were appropriate songs for as we talk through uh, the Psalms. And so when a new king was being crowned, this song would have been in the set list for that moment. And so as you sing this song when a new king is being crowned, It was probably sung so that he'd remember his place before Yahweh who melts mountains. But the usage here implies both the actual city of Jerusalem and the mountain it's on uh, and the place where God meets his people. This actually gets clarified in the next line. 
Because one of the things about uh, Hebrew poetry, when we read the Psalms, is they use parallelism to make points. And typically it's a parallelism where they're rhyming the thought. Instead of rhyming words like we try so hard to do in songs and poems in English, they're rhyming the thought. And so the second line is basically the same as the first line, but it clarifies it, it intensifies it. So when we look at this, uh, if my son has daughters, I actually can't wait to call my grandbabies the daughters of Judah and watch my wife and family roll their eyes. But in the Psalms, in the Psalms and Hebrew poetry, there are a lot of parallel thoughts, and this is one of the kinds. The second line emphasizes and clarifies the first. So we learn here that the people of God are glad and rejoice. The daughters of Judah rejoice when they hear mountains melting and when lightning and the superstorm is coming. When Yahweh is coming, they don't have to fear. They rejoice. So when it says Zion is glad and that the daughters of Judah rejoice, this means that all of the covenant people of God, those who he is saving, when they hear the Lord coming in power and melting mountains, they are not scared of him. They're not afraid, but rather they're encouraged because they know he's coming to save them. And that's the God who loves you. He completely broke the power of sin and death in order to rescue you. And he's coming again. And just before that section about Zion in verse 7, we see this comparison to other gods with a lowercase g. And in the ancient world, there were a whole lot of gods that were worshipped. Kind of like contemporarily, if you think of of Hinduism today, uh, there was a god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of every season, a god who represented earth, etc., etc. And basically, it's a representation of this shift that Paul mentions in Romans chapter 1 where people worship the created things rather than the creator. And what's crazy is that all of us do this. Not just the crazy pagans back in the day. Like, the psalmist says, our God is exalted above all other gods. And the psalmist also, like, he jokes, worship him, all you gods. Because the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who is Father, Son, and Spirit, is completely different from any other God on the face of the planet. He's different from any other God that was worshipped then, and he's different from any God that we worship now. And you might be thinking, hey, wait a second, I don't have a little carved statue that I'm praying to in my room. Uh, At least I hope you're thinking that. But we actually still do worship idols. So this psalm speaks directly to our hearts even in this section. Because whether you've thought about it this way or not, We were made to love things, to pour out our affections towards something, to in real terms worship something. That's why we exist, to worship God, but to participate in a loving relationship with the Creator, aiming our affections at Him because He's worthy. But our hearts are broken and full of pride and selfishness. And so sometimes we end up worshiping something other than God. We worship something else in the place of God. So consider this. Whatever you find ultimate joy in, that's your God. That's your idol. And even good things. You take a good thing and make it a God thing, that's a bad thing. So for me, if I, if I love my wife more than I love Jesus, that's a dangerous thing. And I need to love my wife. 
I'm commanded to love my wife and my family. But I can only really truly love my wife if I love Jesus first and fully. So I must worship him. I must exalt God above any other little gods. And you must too. When we consider verses 10 through 12, This is actually a time for schadenfreude. That's a fun word that I taught all the guys at camp this summer. Um, It's that feeling you have when someone you hate suffers. So to illustrate, do we have any Tar Heel fans? Okay. Do we have any Duke fans? All right. How do you feel when the Tar Heels lose? Exactly. And vice versa, Tario fans, how do you feel when Duke loses, when Coach K loses? Like, you have that feeling. That is actually, there's a name for that in German. In English, you've got to, like, take a paragraph to explain it. But in German, they have one word. It's schadenfreude. And this is actually a moment that we can have schadenfreude biblically. Because we're told to hate evil. So when Satan, when the enemy is ultimately destroyed, it is totally fine to feel schadenfreude at that moment. And then we see the light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Now, as we read this psalm in light of the work of God in Christ, please hear this. Because of Jesus, you are righteous. Remember what we just covered in Romans 6 through 8, the last three weeks? If you are in him, your heart is held upright in him. So this verse is true for you. Not because you try hard to be righteous or to try to keep your heart upright, but because Jesus already did it for you. This verse is true for you. So when you get to this verse, rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. The psalmist is talking to all of us, to you, not just to good Christians or pastors or missionaries. When the Bible speaks about the righteous, If you believe the gospel, that's you because of him. So rejoice, all of you, and give thanks to his name. So rejoice, be glad, proclaim. I see this cycle play through Psalm 97. And it's kind of a way to understand how Psalm 97 impacts our lives. So I reordered the theme I was given from this summer to a little bit more accurately reflect what I think the text is telling us. And we're told in verse 1, let the earth rejoice. Now, this is a churchese word, one that you don't use in general conversation. I mean, so let's make sure we understand rejoice biblically. So some of you may recall rejoice as a key to Philippians. Uh, so let's turn there. Uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, and let's look at that together. And many of you may actually have this memorized. It's an easy one. If you don't have it memorized, you will in like, Two seconds. Chapter 4, verse 4 in Philippians. There's actually a little song I remember learning as a kid that came to my mind when I saw this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So, with that in mind, and we're going to stay in Philippians a little bit longer, so once you get there, you can stick there. If you want to keep your thumb in, in Psalm 97, we'll, we'll jump back there too. But here in Philippians, if you remember uh, Brad's Greek lessons from the last three weeks, 
You've got to follow the verbs to understand a verse of Scripture. And sometimes that means knowing a little bit about the original language. Sometimes it translates okay. Because you look at this, rejoice is a command. He's telling us what to do. And it's active in all circumstances. Rejoice. So remember the context for Paul. Uh, Where is he writing Philippians from? He's in prison. The dude's in jail, and this isn't the jail that we think of. There's no TV. There's no workout room. There's no solitary confinement to keep him safe from other inmates. We're talking about a dirty basement where sewage runoff would just sit and gather in puddles, where daylight may or may not have been there, where food would inevitably taste like the nastiness all around him if he got food. And in the middle of all this, Paul says, rejoice. What? (laughs) How do we make sense of this? So I'm going to take a side path to answer that question. First, let's consider what causes us to rejoice. What causes us to rejoice? I, I submit that victory causes us to rejoice. Or if you've got schadenfreude, you rejoice in somebody else's loss, but it's, it's football season, okay? So many of you know exactly how victory causes us to rejoice. If you're an ECU fan, you're probably not done rejoicing, okay? It, it, it just wells up within us. It's a natural response to victory. Now, I watched a lot of the World Cup this summer, actual football, because I love soccer, <laughs> We can fight later. Uh, I love soccer, and I love the global competition. You don't get that with American football. Global competition every four years. And I love goal celebrations, okay? The Colombians did this little dance, and like every goal, and, and James Rodriguez scored a bunch of goals. He got the golden boot, so they celebrated a lot. And they, everybody knew the dance, and they all did it every time he scored. It was awesome. And then Germany's Miroslav Klose, he does a front flip after he scores. And he's actually the, the leading scorer all time for the World Cup. So he's done a bunch of flips. And he lands, he lands most of them. But there are some guys who like run straight to the corner flag and do a little dance. Or they find their crowd, um, their, their country in the crowd, and they run up and jump and like get hugged by fans. Like, it's awesome. If you score a goal, you have to respond. It almost, it forces it out of us. It's a natural built-in response to victory. It's like hitting a home run or scoring a touchdown, winning that epic game of Pictionary. I mean, even Steve Smith, with every first down, he's freaking out about having scored a first down. And and I'm going to miss that as a Panthers fan, but he couldn't not respond to even a little victory. So now, you still have your place in Philippians. Turn to chapter 1. Let's look at what should cause us to rejoice, and particularly to rejoice in the Lord. In this first chapter, Paul's kind of giving his context. So if you didn't know he was in prison, he explains that here in this chapter. Uh, Look at verse 18. Paul is explaining that he's in prison and that there are some people in Philippi who are preaching the gospel of Jesus, the good news about what God has done through Jesus, and they're preaching it to make a name for themselves. And there's some who are legit. And Paul says that even though there are morons preaching the gospel for their own sake, or to rub it in that I'm in prison and they're not, here in verse 18, he says that no matter how it's happening, Christ is proclaimed, and this causes him to rejoice. Are there any math people here besides Thomas Ferguson? I mean, I hate math. 
But here's an equation that all of us can get. Christ proclaimed equals rejoice. So when the truth about what God has done in Christ for us is spoken, is lived out, is proclaimed in whatever way, that's a reason to rejoice. That's a reason to do a touchdown celebration. That's a reason to lift our hands to the Lord, just like the psalmist tells us. Christ proclaimed. You want to talk about victory? The gospel, the good news of what Jesus did is the ultimate victory. It's worthy of every one of us doing a goal celebration with every breath, even if we fall over uh, or we can't even think of how to celebrate. So Paul can rejoice because of Jesus' great love for him and his identity in Jesus as a child of God and that Christ is proclaimed. Because all those truths, they're not affected by where we sit or even what we do if we've confessed that the gospel is true. So this is how Paul can rejoice in prison. It's not about where he is. It's about what Jesus did. It's not about what someone is saying about him. It's about what Jesus says about him before God the Father. And Jesus says, that one is one of mine that you've given me. If you let that settle in your mind for a second, the God of all creation has looked down on you. And he has adopted you as a son or daughter of God. That's a wow moment. That is worth rejoicing. That is victory worth celebrating outwardly. And in 1 Peter 4, 19, let's look at that as well. To have a biblical definition for rejoice. The Apostle Peter writes to those who are being persecuted. And in this verse, he points out that we can rejoice in the Lord, even in suffering. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In this whole context of this section of chapter 4, he talks about the fact that we can rejoice We can trust, we can respond, even in suffering. For some of us, that's a pretty foreign concept, or it's a strange idea to get our minds around, because we really don't have much of a sense of suffering for Jesus' sake. Because no one is threatening us or our families uh, to throw us in jail if you tell them the gospel this week. Uh, Not here in the U.S., anyways. But some of us know uh, the kinds of suffering that are according to God's will, that come from the consequences of sin and creation. Because sin has broken everything. We know people who are fighting or who have fought cancer. The effects of divorce, broken relationships, things that just don't make sense. So let me challenge you to do what Paul's example shows us from Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Let your reasonableness be known, is what that next verse in Philippians 4 says, to the people that you encounter. Because even if your life is in an awful place, you can trust the God who loved you enough to sacrifice his own son for you. Rejoice in what you know to be true from the Bible and proven true by Jesus' resurrection. God has beaten sin and death completely for me, for you, and for the people that we encounter every day. 
So from our text this morning in Psalm 97, the victory is established in the very first phrase. The Lord reigns. So rejoice. Yahweh reigns. As we rejoice in his victory, as we celebrate this victory, we have opportunity to remember why we rejoice. And then from verse 1, the earth rejoices, the coastlands are glad. So being glad has everything to do with our state of being, our attitude, your outlook on life even. Uh, or if you've got glasses or contacts, which is what I wear most Sundays, it's being glad is the lenses through which you see and experience everything. But there's even more to it than that. Uh, do you remember the language that the Old Testament is written in? It's written in Hebrew. So the term be glad, it's actually this word samach. Say that with me. Samach. You gotta, you gotta hack it up. That's good. Uh, to be glad is to samach. It's a state of being that manifests itself. It's a state that has evidence, if you will. It's like chesed, my, actually my favorite word in Hebrew. Chesed is a covenant love that manifests itself in action. It proves itself. So samach, to be glad, means to be a way that manifests itself outwardly. So in fact, throughout the Old Testament, being glad is almost directly synonymous with rejoicing. That's why you see them cycling together, feeding off of each other. So again, to get a biblical understanding of what it means to be glad, let's look at some other places in Scripture. So if you would, jump to Luke chapter 15. We're going to be a way that manifests itself. To be glad. Many of you are, are surely familiar with this parable of Jesus. Uh, it finds itself worked into pop culture in a lot of ways. Um, because there's lots of ways you could kind of moralize this. But man, there is some amazing spiritual depth to this story that Jesus tells. But for those of you who aren't familiar with it, please read it. And actually read the whole chapter 15, because uh, Luke is recording what Jesus says about lostness and foundness. But here at the end of the story, jump down to verse 32. At the end of this story, we have the older brother, he's being a grump at this party that's happening for his younger brother. Uh, because it, he's just got this attitude that's not gladness, but the father says to him in response, when someone who is lost is found, it's fitting to celebrate and be glad. He's saying in verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother, he was dead and he's alive. He was lost, now he's found. So the father isn't just mentally glad that his son came home. Uh, his gladness erupts into a sweet party with killing fat cows and robes and rings and all of these things to celebrate. So he is glad, and it manifests itself. Being glad is an attitude that has proof. Now let's jump back to the Psalter. I'm not going to lie, I like hearing the pages turn. And so that's one of the reasons I didn't mind having so many different places in the text this morning. But in Psalm 32...
in Psalm 32, verses 10 and 11. The psalmist says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love, and this is actually chesed, steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So we see a progression here, right? We see be glad, rejoice because you're glad, and just shout about it. Because God's love surrounds and envelops you. So how many of you have actually just shouted because you couldn't think of anything else to do in a moment of rejoicing? Oh, come on. All right. That was good. I've done this. I'll put myself out there. Because uh, we didn't find out the sex of any of our babies so far. We didn't find out for Judah, our first, for Clara. And we're not going to find out for the third one, so don't ask. Um, we're gonna, I'm going to not let my wife cave. She almost did at the last ultrasound, but we're not. We're going to be surprised because it's amazing. And so when our first was born, when I had a son, a firstborn son, and he's being checked by the doctor, um, I'm walking down the hall to get my 30th cup of coffee. And so as I was walking down the hallway, just, it just continued to settle in my mind, I have a son. And I just went, It was a little girly, but I, that's what I did. And I kept going. And I got my coffee, and I came back. I was so glad. My attitude, my approach to life was, was affected by that gladness. And it caused me to rejoice. It manifested itself. That's what the psalmist is talking about. So now you don't have to go too far. We're going to go into Psalm 33. So for some, it might be on the same page. For me, it's just a swipe upwards. Uh, going to verse 20. The last part of this psalm. The psalmist says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So why is our heart at peace from this psalm? Because we trust Him. So trusting God is the context for being glad. Because he who is completely faithful is our hope. So being glad isn't always shouting about it. Sometimes it's also resting without guilt. Having an attitude of gratefulness, of peace, of kindness. But either way, being glad is an attitude that proves itself somehow. And if you think about it, there are definitely other ways we can be. (laughs) And you know people who are like this. Some of the other ways to be, instead of being glad, you could be apathetic. You could be dissatisfied. You could be angry. But all of those ways of being, those outlooks on life, because that's what they are, they're trapped by sin. Being apathetic is not knowing what it means to love or being loved by God. To be dissatisfied means you're only really wanting to please yourself. Being angry means not trusting God to be in control. So these ways of being, they're all broken. And how can you really be any of these ways when you consider the gospel? Consider Jesus. I mean, seriously, consider what Jesus did. 
consider what we proclaim. Can you be apathetic about that? Can you be dissatisfied with him? If everything we need for life and godliness is in the knowledge of Christ, if the one who owns the cattle on 10,000 hills is giving everything to us as joint heirs with Christ, can you be dissatisfied? Can you really be angry at life when you think about Jesus and what he's done for you, how he loves you? So I would say rejoice. (laughs) The victory is completely won in Jesus. Yahweh reigns over death, over sin, and ultimately over all of creation. So what can man do to us? What can sickness do to us? Nothing can stand against Yahweh when he moves in power. And that's what Psalm 97 reminds us. He melts rock and earth just by his presence. Fire consumes his enemies. And he is on our side because of Jesus. So be glad because Yahweh reigns. We have a very specific way to see and interact with the world. Our attitude is shaped by these truths about God. It's going to manifest itself. And if these things about Jesus that we've sung this morning, that I've proclaimed, if they're really true, you might want to tell somebody about this. Be ready to have an answer for the hope that you have that causes you to rejoice and proclaim it to your own heart every day, just as his mercies are renewed every morning. Be renewed in the truth of the gospel. So proclaim was the third part of our theme from this psalm. Psalm 97 uh, points to uh, rejoicing because the Lord reigns. Be glad as you rejoice. And then the heavens proclaim. But proclaim is yet another potentially churchese word Uh, So be careful not to file it away when you come across it in the scripture. I mean, you probably don't use it too often, but maybe you've heard it in terms of, you know, I want to proclaim my love for whoever on Facebook. But it's another word you probably don't use a whole lot. So in Philippians 1, when Paul says Christ was proclaimed, so I rejoice. What was Paul saying? What was he saying was happening? He's saying that the gospel, the story of what God has done in Christ was being told. It was being taught was being preached. Or you could even think about it as it was being tweeted, it was being YouTubed, it was being Snapchatted, it was being posted on Facebook. And here's a side note, this is a tangent, okay? (laughs) There's a whole lot of junk that gets posted and shared in these mediums, and it looks nice or it sounds really good, but it's not the gospel. So we need to be careful and intentional about the things that we click share on uh, so that we can even proclaim the gospel on social media, because there are ways to do that, and there are ways that it doesn't work. So, side note, back to the main point. Um, I know that some of you have been believers uh, for a long time. Uh, some of us, like, like me, have grown up in the faith. As some of you have just recently heard and responded to the gospel, uh, or maybe you haven't even responded yet. You're still considering these things about Jesus. And maybe some of you had a chance to talk about Jesus with somebody this week and you weren't even sure what to say. So, like, if someone walks up to you at work tomorrow morning, and they said, hey, can you, can you explain this Jesus thing to me? What would you do? Psalm 97 says, the heavens proclaim his righteousness. But even those of us who know that, we overlook it. 
my son pointed out a rainbow before Sarah or I noticed a couple weeks ago. We've had all this rain. Uh, and it was a beautiful reminder to me that the heavens constantly, always proclaim God's creativity and his beauty and his mercy. And sometimes my three-year-old sees it before I do. But the heavens tell consistently about God's creative acts, about his power. They can't help but constantly proclaim because that's why everything was made to proclaim his glory. But that doesn't mean that when someone asks you about God, you can just point to the sky and say, look, pretty. (laughs) So let me give you a couple thoughts about the gospel to help you proclaim it. The gospel is a truth statement. It's not an opinion. It's not a feeling. Okay? So if I proclaim, I am hungry, that's just a feeling. Or, Frozen is my favorite movie of all time. That's just an opinion of some guy who has toddlers. If I proclaim, however, it's raining outside, this should affect you because it's a truth statement. You will dress accordingly. You will choose whether or not to even go outside. All affected by the truth is raining. So hear this. Death is broken A man was raised to life from the dead. That should affect you because it is a truth statement. And it's what we proclaim. It's part of the gospel. It's truth. Another way to think about it is it's news. That's what the word gospel means. It means news, good news. It's not advice, okay? It's news, it's not advice. It's the news that you've just won one million dollars. That changes your life. (laughs) It's not saying, hey, if you just save your money well and invest in gold and real estate, one day you too might be a millionaire. That kind of advice could change your life, I guess, potentially, but it's all up to you. Rather, if someone straight up gives you a million dollars and you didn't earn it, it was done for you, everything is different in that moment. And the rest of the time. The gospel is news about what Christ has done. It is not advice about how to live. That follows the news, but it doesn't precede the news. The news comes first. There's actually another term for this theologically, that the, uh, the indicatives follow, or precede the imperative. We have to know, we have to be indicated who we are. We have to know who we are because of the gospel before we can do any of the imperatives, before we can actually live the way that we're called to live. We have to know who we are in Christ. It's news. It's not advice. G.K. Chesterton has a million awesome quotes, but this one struck me this week. That unless the gospel sounds like a gun going off, it has not been uttered at all. So if we heard the sound of a gun going off right now, we would all immediately turn in whatever direction it came from. They've actually hunted deer out back here, so that's why I turned that way. Like if we heard a gun go off, you would, everybody, our attention would immediately be focused on, where did that come from? What are the implications? So to continue this word picture, the gospel is not a weapon of violence, but rather a signal 
So hearing the gospel for the first time, especially, is like starting a race. So hearing the gospel this morning and every morning, it should be a powerful wake-up call. It should be like a gun going off. All of the noise that this world tells us about who we are is not true. So when the gospel is fired off, We need to ask ourselves, what does that mean? What are the implications? Let our attention be drawn to the gospel. And the gospel, one of the ways to state it is this, that the God of all creation, he saw the brokenness of humanity, and in his great love, he entered into it by son Jesus. Jesus lived and loved perfectly. And then he died the death that we deserve because of sin. And then he was raised to life to prove God's power over sin and death. And any who confess that this is true and we repent, we're brought to life by the Holy Spirit of God and given the promise of eternal life with God where we'll finally live as creation was intended to live. This whole scripture, the whole Bible that you hold in your hand tells this story and every little part tells this story. So consider that cycle that we see in Psalm 97. Rejoice. Rejoice in the victory of our king, the one who comes to protect us and destroy the enemy. Be glad. He is for us. We can go about life with the attitude of one at peace, one who's secure, because our gladness may even cause us to rejoice again. And as we are glad, as you rejoice, proclaim the truth. Tell somebody what God has done in Christ, what God has done for you, and what God has done for them. So rejoice, be glad, proclaim. Would you pray with me? God, we are grateful for the opportunity to gather as a family, recognizing our role as the body of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to fellowship together and to worship you in that way. Thank you for the opportunity to sing together and to worship you in that way. Thank you for the opportunity to give, to pray for one another. And thank you so much for your word. And may we continually look to it as a light unto our path. May we trust your word to continually reveal you to us. We thank you for the opportunity yet again to rejoice in your victory on our behalf and for your glory. Let that foster in us gladness, deep gladness that would affect the way that we see and interact with the world. And as we live rejoicing in gladness, help us proclaim the truth. Help us speak simply and clearly about the person and work of Jesus because it's changed everything. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Would you stand for the benediction? What now? Uh, One of the questions David opened his uh, sermon here today with, and something I would offer to you that you consider 
as you leave here today, go back out to your lives and think about what you heard this morning. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 through 13, it says, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Go in peace.